The following message was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. Inside the bulletin, there is an insert, rather weighty this morning. But that's going to give you direction as to where we're headed this morning as we continue in our series, part two on creation. Like I said, we introduced a biblical view of creation last week, part one, and today is part two. So let's go ahead and look at that. And our children are invited, welcomed to be a part of our study today. If you're a young child looking forward to Children's Church, that'll be next week. But today you can be with us and learn about what God's Word has to say about creation because that's important for you as well. Actually, it's important for everybody, if you're a Christian, to get a biblical view of creation because if you've been raised in public education, if you currently go to a public school, whether it's a public elementary school or a public junior high school or a public high school or a public college, secular college, you have to take the sciences and you've been taught evolution, no doubt, and you've probably been taught that evolution isn't just a theory. Actually, you've been taught that evolution is a fact. That's what we're at where we're at today. So it's no longer the theory of evolution, it's the fact of evolution. And what we present this morning from God's Word is the very antithesis of that, the very opposite. So let's go ahead and look at that, what the Bible has to say about creation. And that's why we're calling this, this morning, The Forgotten Fundamentals, Creation Part 2. And we're going to be looking at Genesis. That's where most of the information we're going to be gleaning will be coming from. So you can have your finger there and a couple of other places. But before we get to that, just by way of reminder, everybody has a view of origins. Origins speaks of how everything got here, how humanity got here, how planet Earth got here, how the solar system got here, how all of creation got here. That's origins. How did everything originate? Everybody's confronted with that question. Everybody answers that question, either knowingly or unwittingly. And you only have three options on origins. How did everything get here? How was everything created? And why? And option number one is you just take the Bible at face value of what it says in Genesis 1, 2, and other places. That's option one. That answers the question. Option number two is to buy into what secular, naturalistic, atheistic humanism has come up with, the evolutionary theory, fine-tuned over the last 150 years. And that is that It wasn't started by any personal God, but rather things evolved. And they came either out of nothing, there was nothing, then all of a sudden nothing exploded and became everything. Or the other view is that eternal, I mean, matter is eternal. So that's the evolutionary option. And then there's option number three. So there's the strictly biblical view, the atheistic evolutionary view, or option number three is to take both of those views and kind of mix them all together. And you've got this mongrel of a monster called theistic evolution, which is probably the majority dominant view in evangelical American Christianity today, without a doubt. So those are your three options. And I propose that the Bible is very clear as to what the correct option is. And so let's go ahead and proceed with our study on what God has to say from his authoritative, perfect word of God about creation. Last week we looked at the first, really, first four points, and I'll review those. Point number one last week was that the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, tells us how God created everything. It answers that question very clearly. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a categorical, comprehensive, overarching statement. God created everything. Number two, Genesis is a unified, divinely inspired historical book composed by the prophet Moses in 1400 B.C. Moses was a prophet. God gave this revelation to Moses. Moses wrote it down. And God's people preserved the sacred scriptures for us all throughout history. So now we can answer that question, how did everything get here? It was through the Bible. That's how we know the truth about origins. God communicated it to us through his word. Genesis, the word of God. Number three, how you interpret Genesis chapters 1 and 2 affects how you view the rest of Scripture. This has to do with your hermeneutic, your science of how you interpret the Bible. That's why Genesis 1 and 2 is so important and foundational for the Christian of a proper understanding of it because you're supposed to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 just like you interpret the rest of Scripture. Genesis is a book of narrative, so it shouldn't be treated in a different way to come up with a different conclusion based on your presuppositions. So those were the first three. We handed it to number four. So go ahead and look at number four. And that is that it takes supernatural faith to believe in Genesis 1 and 2. It takes supernatural faith to believe in Genesis 1 and 2. That option number one I was talking about. How did everything get here? Well, just taking Genesis 1 and 2 at face value. It's very simplistic. It comes across as very unscientific. But it is very understandable. child can read Genesis 1 and 2 and understand what's going on there. And to believe it, it takes supernatural faith. Supernatural faith comes to a person only one way, and that is as a gift from God. The ability to believe in the supernatural, the ability to believe in God at His Word, is a gift from God. Supernatural faith is a gift from God. And that should be the biblical Christian approach because that's what God requires of us in every other area of life, doesn't it? You get saved by faith, a supernatural faith. You live your Christian life daily by faith, a supernatural faith. We expect and wait for Jesus to return and redeem all things by faith. Why shouldn't we believe in the very beginning and creation by faith? The just shall live by faith. That's what Scripture says. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. We walk by faith, not by Sight. Sight refers to the empirical things, the observable things, the things that we can see, the things that we can touch, the things we can put in a laboratory, supposedly, whether they're true or false. Don't depend upon your view of origins on things that are seen or supposedly empirical. Primarily, it needs to be by faith because God was the only one around at the time of creation and He told us how it all began. It takes supernatural faith to believe in Genesis 1 and 2. As a matter of fact, just this just a personal testimony. Uh, Genesis 1 says in Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man, or Adam, the first man, Adam, out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So it says that God took a pile of dirt, blew on it, and it became a man. That's hard to believe. No, actually, you know what? Without supernatural faith, that is impossible to believe. But I believe Adam and Eve were real. I believe they were real people. I believe uh, that Genesis 1 and 2 is a historical account. And the only reason that I believe in Adam and Eve and that Adam was created from a pile of dirt is because it was revealed in Scripture and that God gave me the ability to believe in it supernaturally. That is the only reason I believe in creation based on Genesis 1 and 2, because by faith, God gave me that faith to believe it as a gift. And that's true of everything else in the Bible. 
I believe that Jonah was uh, inside a whale only because Scripture says so. Did you know that everything we know about Jesus that is reliable and everything that Jesus ever said can be found only in Scripture? Did you know that? You can't find that information anywhere else in history. Any truth you want to know about Jesus Christ, it can only be found in Scripture. Well, what about the Encyclopedia? Well, everything that the World Book and Encyclopedia Britannica says that's true about Jesus, they got it from the Bible. That was their source. Anything they come up with that is not true, it's not in the Bible. So everything we believe about Jesus is contingent and dependent upon what we read in Scripture. So also it is true about origins and how everything got here in the first place. It takes supernatural faith. Well, how do we get faith? Because Christians need faith. We need to grow in our faith. We need to increase in our faith. And I would submit to you there is only one real way that Christians can grow in their faith. And that's Romans chapter 10. Paul clued us into that and he said, Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Or faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. Or faith comes by hearing or being exposed to the truth of the Word of God. That is the only way that you can grow and increase your faith on any given issue in life. Did you know that? Because belief... In Scripture, belief always has to do, or faith in Scripture, always has to do with faith in God. Faith in His Word. Faith in what He says. That's the only kind of faith or belief that Scripture knows. It is always belief in God and in His Word. And so there is only one way to increase your faith. You can't just muster up faith. Oh, I need more faith. No, there's only one way to get faith. That's from the Word of God. When you are down, you have a trial in life, where should the Christian go? Right here, to the reservoir of truth. This is what increases your faith in every area of life. I don't care what it is. Your marriage, your finances, your friendships, your personal life, your emotions. The only way you can increase your faith is be exposed to the truth of the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit uses that in the life of a believer to grow their faith, to mature their faith, to increase their faith. So it only comes from the Bible. And it takes supernatural faith to believe in this amazing, crazy story of what Genesis has to say about how everything came to be. It's a gift from God. So that's number four. It takes supernatural faith to believe in Genesis 1 and 2. And if, you know, if you're talking to somebody who is an unbeliever and they believe in evolution uh, and they're an atheist or an agnostic or whatever and they don't believe in Genesis 1 through 3, you can argue with them until you are blue in the face and you are not going to succeed because what they need is they need their eyes opened with supernatural faith is what they need. It needs to be the work of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is plant seeds. Plant seeds of the truth of the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with those seeds planted and softens their heart and hopefully will unblind them from satanic blindness of 2 Corinthians 4 where it says Satan blinds unbelievers so that they cannot understand and believe Scripture. So we are seed planters. So don't spend three hours arguing with an evolutionist about the truth of creation. Just plant seeds and share the gospel. Let God do the rest. Number five, God created everything out of nothing in the beginning of time. I want to emphasize the word beginning in this statement. God created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing in the beginning of time. I want to emphasize the word beginning because the most popular Theory of origins and creation in Christianity today in America is called the day-age theory. Writers like Hugh Ross, who is a Christian, has a website, written many books on this issue. Gleason Archer is another one that's written books on this issue. This is the dominant view in Christianity, the day-age theory. In other words, you look at Genesis 1 and it says God created everything in six days. You don't take those days literally. 
Those are metaphorical. And those days represent long periods of time, eons of time, even millions of years is what those days supposedly represent. They're not real days, they would tell us. That's the day-age theory. Hugh Ross says this, and I quote, The seventh day of Genesis 1 and 2 represents a minimum of several thousand years. Point blank. He's a Christian. That's what he says. I would say, no, that is not true. And Hugh Ross, who is a Christian, poses that there are different ages throughout all of history. Uh, And here are the ages. He says that day one happened about 18 billion years ago. And then a lot of time transpired. And then about day five happened millions and millions of years ago. And then more millions of years transpired. And then finally God got to day six. There's been all kinds of death and animals and everything else. And then at day six, uh, billions of years after God started creating on day six, uh, he says that day six lasted or started about 60,000 years ago. And about 60,000 years ago, he created an Adam and an Eve. And so he interprets the days of Genesis, not as real days, but as long eons and periods of time. And so in his scheme of things, God created Adam and Eve, not at the beginning of time, but after at least 15 to 18 billion years had transpired. Then God, at the very end, recently, 60,000 years ago, created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. So he would say that Adam and Eve were not created in the first week at the same time as the sun and the moon and the stars and light and everything else that it tells us in Genesis 1. Well, there's a huge problem with that. God created everything out of nothing in the beginning of time. God created Adam and Eve at the beginning of time, not 15 billion years later after He created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and light. And all I want to do is refer to Jesus Himself, who is God, who is part of the Trinity. Jesus, who was the Creator, who was there at the time of creation and helped create all things. Do you think He would know about the origins of the universe since He was the one who brought it into existence? If you have your Bible, look at Mark chapter 10. An amazing statement that Jesus makes. He wasn't even talking about creation either. It's just kind of a side note. In a conversation and a debate with the Jewish leaders of the day as he was out teaching publicly, and in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1, it says, And rising up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So he's out publicly teaching. Verse 2, and his critics confront him and some Pharisees came up to him, testing him. These are the Pharisees. They hated Jesus. They were trying to stump him. Stump the chump. That was their goal. So they started asking him questions to test him and they began to question Jesus whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? See, Jesus assumed that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He believed in Mosaic authorship. Because he knew it was true. What did Moses command you in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books? Verse 4, and they said, notice Jesus goes to the the authoritative source to answer a question. You have an ultimate question about life. Where do you go? To the Bible. That's what Jesus did. It is written. What does Scripture say? Just do what the Bible says. So they quote from Scripture, but they take it out of context. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Moses allowed us to have divorces. And they were putting a twist on it. This divorce was not a good thing. It was a sin at that time, even in the context. Verse 5, But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. God made an allowance for divorce because He knew He was working with sinful people. So there was an allowance for divorce under certain circumstances, even in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law. 
But that was not God's design. God's, not ide- God's ideal is not divorce. Here's God's ideal, verse 6. Look, look what Jesus does. But from the beginning of creation, key phrase, from the beginning of creation, just like it says when Moses wrote it in Genesis chapter 1, from the beginning, in the first week, God made them male and female. Here Jesus asserts that Adam and Eve were created at the beginning of creation, not after 15 billion years have transpired. In the first week, on the sixth day, from the beginning, just as the Bible says. It's amazing. From the beginning, so much for the day-age theory. Adam and Eve were created at the very beginning of time, from the beginning of creation. Uh, It even goes on to be more amazing. Just look at verse 7. Verse 7, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What's amazing here is that in chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He quotes from Genesis chapter 1. Then right after that, He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus was under the understanding that Genesis 1 and 2 went together as a unit. One literary unit. The reason that's so amazing is because more and more evangelical Christian scholars today say that Genesis 1 and 2 don't go together. They're separate. They were written at different times. They weren't even written by Moses. And you've got to understand them differently. No, Jesus says they go together as one unit. And He takes them literally at face value. Awesome. So God created everything out of nothing from the beginning of time. Number six. God created everything in the span of six days. Six days. And that's just clear. We went over this uh, last week. Genesis, just one, two, three, four, five, what happens? And then on the culmination, the last day of creation, after God's created everything else, sun, moon, and stars, plant, light, darkness, all the animals, all the creatures, birdies and fishies, the last thing that He creates is humanity, the human race, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, created on the sixth day. And then after the, seventh, after the sixth day, God rested on the seventh day, and it says He ceased from His creation. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. After He looked at creation that He had made in His image, and He said, it is very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And He said Adam and Eve were very good because at that point they were without sin. There was no fall. There was no curse yet. It was good. He finished His creation. By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done. Genesis 2.2 He was done. He rested. It was complete. It was over. The reason that's important, it's real basic and simple, is that there are evangelical, influential evangelical theologians that say that creation is still going on and continuing. Wolfhart Pottenberg. Maybe you don't know him. That's probably good if you don't. Anyway, he's an influential theologian and philosopher and a Christian. And he says that creation is still going on and we are in day seven of creation. And creation continues and continues and you shouldn't take a literal view of Genesis chapter 1. And those are not real days. Yet Hebrews, the New Testament even, Hebrews 4, 3, 4 tells us, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. God rested on the seventh day from all of His works. God created everything in the span of six days and they were real, literal days. Moses is emphatic about this. He repeats this. Everybody turn to Exodus chapter 20. When I say Exodus 20, for some of you the light will go on. Ding! Let's see, Exodus 20. Hey, that's the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. I didn't know that had anything to do with creation. Well, it does. Exodus 20, starting with the Ten Commandments, which God gave to Moses. Moses is the one who wrote all of this down because of God's revelation. He wrote the book of Genesis. He received the Ten Commandments from God. 
and look at Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 8. Commandment number 4. God is talking. Keep that in mind. God is talking here. Speaking to Moses. Here's what God says. Christian, if God said it, I believe it. That settles it for me. That should be our motto. God said to Moses. Remember, the Scripture said that God spoke to Moses as a friend speaks face to face with another friend. He was a prophet of God. Unbelievable privilege. And God told Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day, Moses. Honor the Sabbath day. What was it? It was the seventh day of the week. A real day. In Moses' day, there were seven days in a week. The seventh day, the Sabbath, Moses, honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Verse 9, here's how you do it. Six days you shall labor and do all of your... Six days. These are literal days. Six days. This is the same Moses that wrote about six days in Genesis 1. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. The seventh day. That's the same seventh day that Hugh Ross said that the seventh day represents millions and millions of years. This sounds like a real day to me. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Why, God, should we honor the seventh day of the week? The answer is in verse 11. Because in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. Can it be any clearer? Well, I don't believe Genesis 1 is real days. In six days I made the heavens and the earth. God is talking. The sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This, this passage makes absolutely no sense. Commandment number four makes absolutely no sense if you don't take Genesis 1 literally as real days. Moses was the original author. He was the one that spoke from God. We are concerned about the original intent of the original author in Scripture when we try to interpret it in terms of hermeneutics. What do you think Moses' understanding was of Genesis 1 when he wrote it and when he read it? Do you think he was thinking of millions of years and eons of time and evolution in Charles Darwin? No. He was taking it at face value. What was he thinking on the Mount Sinai here when God said, seven days, rest on the seventh day, because I made the world in six days, Moses? Moses literally believed it was six days. And isn't it coincidental or interesting that today, how many days do we have in a week? Uh, I think seven. Oh, how coincidental. And if you went to another country, you'd probably have seven days in a week. And all throughout recorded history and humanity, you have seven days in a week. When was the last time you asked an evolutionary uh, atheist or whatever, ask them how we got seven days in a week and see what their answer is? It'd be very interesting to see what they come up with. And the idea of seven days is a universal reality in human history. So God created everything in the span of six days, just like he said. Number seven, God created the first two humans on the sixth day. On the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image, let them rule over all the earth. Genesis 1.26. This is a real Adam and a real Eve, real people. Adam was real. It was a real day on day six. And the purpose that God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them and he said, Rule on my behalf. Rule over creation. Be my vice regents. That was God's original ideal intent for the first two human beings. And, it, and that has not changed. What is God's ideal for us as living human beings on planet Earth? Why are we here? The purpose of life. 
According to God the Creator, we are to be His vice-regents over the earth. To rule on His behalf over creation. To be His co-mediators. This is still God's purpose for humanity. And that can only happen through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you get born again and come to know Jesus Christ, then you literally can co-reign with Christ right now on earth, on God's behalf, as stewards over planet earth in every area of life. God still wants us to rule over all creation. The physical realm and the spiritual realm. To be His vice regents. And this is going to culminate and be fulfilled even in the future because in Revelation 2 and 3, where John gives all these promises to the Christian when they die, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. He says it seven times to Christians. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches, if you're a Christian. To the one who overcomes. Who's the one who overcomes? A Christian, according to 1 John 5. If you are a Christian, you are an overcomer. There's a promise for you, overcomer, in Revelation. And what is that? They are all future promises. These are things that you as a Christian, as an overcomer, are going to inherit in the next life, in the future. One of those is that we will reign with Christ and rule on the earth. Fulfilling the mandate of Genesis 1.28 that was circumvented by sin and the curse. It's awesome. That is the purpose and the destiny of a redeemed humanity. And it will be fulfilled. But the precedent, and it's all based upon the fact that Adam and Eve were real, created on the sixth day. So God created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, on the first day. Look at Genesis chapter 5 real quick. Some Christians uh, over years and time have tried to take evolutionary theory and mix it with Genesis 1 and they come up with this hodgepodge that really is inconsistent with Scripture and doesn't make sense. And it's a joke in the scientific community as well. It just doesn't accomplish the purpose. But many of these people would say that, well, maybe Adam wasn't a real guy. He's metaphorical. And, well, okay, maybe he is real. But then uh, there were millions of years between Adam and some of his descendants. And so that's how we can account for millions of years and accommodate the fossil record that the secular world wants to throw at us. So they want to find huge, massive gaps. And that's why Hugh Ross can say that Adam was around about 60,000, maybe 100,000 years ago. Because in the genealogies, there are just massive Huge gaps of time. But look at Genesis chapter 5 real quick. Starting at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, named them man. In the day, in the day when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and he named him Seth. Isn't it interesting that he gives... This chronology sequence of time. When Adam lived to be 130 years old, he had a son named Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. And then he had other sons and daughters. So when he was 130, he gave birth to Seth. He lived another 800 years. That puts you about, what, 930 years? Verse 5. So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. Perfect math. Why would Moses go into all this detail if these were not real days, real years, and real human beings? And then it picks up on his son. Verse 6, And Seth lived 105 years, and he became the father of a guy named Enosh. Are these not real people? The onus is on the critic of Scripture to say, Seth wasn't real, Adam wasn't real, Enosh wasn't real. These are not real people. But if you keep going in the genealogy here, look down to verse 25. There's a guy named Methuselah. Oh, was he a real guy? You have to discount him. If Adam isn't real, then Methuselah isn't real. Look at verse 29. Then you have to discount a descendant from Methuselah named Noah. Then you have to get rid of Noah somehow. Go to Luke chapter 3 real quick. As far as the genealogies are concerned with respect to Scripture, are they literal? Are they historical? Are they accurate? 
Luke chapter 3 gives a genealogy of Jesus Himself, the Messiah. I'm just going to read it to you. Luke 3.23 And when Jesus began His ministry, Jesus Himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. He was adopted by Joseph. And Joseph was the son of a man named Eli. And Eli was the son of a man named Mathat. And Mathat was the son of a man named Levi. So it's going through Jesus' genealogy here. Okay? Generation by generation. Keeps going. Verse 31. He was the son of Malaya, who was the son of Mena, who was the son of Matha, who was the son of Nathan, who was the son of King David. Oh, there's a familiar name. Was David not a real historical figure? Verse 32. David was the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon. Go to verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac. Or even before that, verse 33. The son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ruth, the son of Peleg. Heber, Shelah, Kenan, Arpaxid, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. Inspired scripture in Matthew 3, or Luke 3 says that Noah was just as much of a real person as Jesus himself. There are no gaps here of zillions of years between this genealogy. There are no fictitious people here. Noah was the son of Lamech. Lamech was the son of Methuselah. The oldest guy that ever lived. Methuselah was the son of Enoch. Enoch was the son of Jared, who was the son of Mahaliel, who was the son of Canaan, who was the son of Enosh, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Genesis 1. Take it at face value. God created the first two human beings on the sixth day. Number 8. God created everything good without sin. In the very beginning. God created everything good without sin. God saw that it was good and He repeats that over and over again and at the end of His creation He says it was very good. Good. The point here is simply that things have changed since the time of creation when it was good. Things are bad now. There were tornadoes that ripped through America and killed over 50 people last week. That is bad. That is not natural. That is not normal. That grieves God. There is a reason for it. And Genesis explains the reason. And we're going to talk about that, but you've got to take Genesis, Genesis literally and the creation literally and the flood literally. And that's what we're looking at next week is the fall of man and why things are bad. How they're not good anymore as Jesus or as God once declared. But in the beginning, God created everything good without sin. Evolutionists don't believe that. They think that everything has always been the same. It's called uniformitarianism. Everything's always been the same. We would say, no, not everything has always been the same. Something drastic and terrible happened in history. It was sin. It was the flood. And it accounts for a lot of things. God created everything good without sin. Number nine, Genesis 1 and 2 does not conflict with true science. You know, that's what we're going to hear. Well, you know, you're a Christian, you believe the Bible, so you, believe, you, 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 you come to origins with faith, but we scientists, we come with science. We come with objective truth and data, but you come with faith. And they pit faith against true science, which is a false dichotomy. They are not mutually exclusive. It's not faith versus true science. Not at all. You can hold to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 literally and be the best of a scientist. Here's some examples. I would, so I would just pose to you that Genesis 1 and 2, they do not conflict with science at all. As a matter of fact, they confirm true science. Here's some scientific thoughts to keep in mind. First of all, who is the greatest scientific mind that ever existed in the history of the world? That is God Almighty. The most systematic mind, the most orderly mind, the most detailed mind that it, there ever was is God Himself, the Creator. How's that for scientific? You think you're an engineer? Huh. God is the ultimate engineer. How about uh, Sir Isaac Newton, 1681? 
He was an English physicist, mathematician, astronomer, natural philosopher, and member of the prestigious Royal Society in England. He's considered by many the greatest scientist in the history of the world. He is. In 2005, the Royal Society took a poll of the most influential scientists in the history of the world. Isaac Newton beat out Albert Einstein. Did you know that Isaac Newton wrote more on religion than he did science? He did. He was a Bible scholar. His writings are still in print. Did he believe in Genesis? Absolutely. Did he believe in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Listen to what he says about the literal face value history of Genesis 1. He says, Methinks, that's the way they talked back then, Methinks one of the Ten Commandments given by God on Mount Sinai, pressed by divers of the prophets, observed by our Savior, His apostles and the first Christians, should not be grounded on a fiction. In other words, he was saying that Genesis 1 is literal history. It is not fiction or mythology. Because he began to catch wind of that theory being passed during that time. During the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, where that became big. And he says no. And he was a scientific mind. Another scientist, and this guy wasn't even a Christian. He was an evolutionist. Herbert Spencer, died in 1903. English philosopher and theorist. Heavily influenced by Charles Darwin's writings. And it was Herbert Spencer who coined the phrase, the survival of the fittest. And just before his death in 1903, he contributed one thing to the scientific community that people benefit from today. And that is that he said that all of reality can be categorized into one of five categories. All of reality as we know it can be categorized into one of five categories. And he said this in 1903. This is still true today as far as we know. He was right. He was not even a Christian. He was an evolutionist. And this is what he said. All of reality can be put into these five categories. Time, force, action, space, matter. Time, force, action, space, matter. That is true science. First verse of the Bible. In the beginning, time. God, force, created, action, heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Unbelievable. Time, force, action, space, matter. Sounds pretty consistent with science, doesn't it? Here's another interesting thought. Uh, according to Genesis 1 and 2, it says, and particularly Genesis 2, I already read that, is that God created Adam out of a pile of dirt. Now, you would think, if you're thinking scientifically, okay, we know the human body is composed of all kinds of elements, and maybe if we broke down those elements and we looked under a microscope, we would see some correlation between a pile of dirt and the components of the human body. Well, you know what? People have done that. Talk about scientific. Listen to this. When people die, they decay and become dirt. How's that for science? God made Adam out of dirt. When you die, you become dirt. That sounds pretty scientific. Even in Genesis 3.19, God told Adam, in the day you eat, you're going to die, and because you sinned, you're going to die, and remember, man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Every human person that dies turns to dust. That's scientific. But I'm even going to get more scientific than that. Here's the elemental composition of the Earth's crust. The Earth's crust has all kinds of uh, elements that it's composed of. And here are the top nine. The Earth's crust. A pile of dirt. If you examine it under the microscope, you would find first oxygen. That is the number one element in dirt. 46.6% of the Earth's crust is made up of the element of oxygen. If you took the human body, broke it down to basic elements, it has, as far as we know, 59 elements make up the human body. The dominant element in the human body, guess what it is? By far... Oxygen. What a coincidence. Earth crust, 46.6%. Human body, 50% oxygen. Perfect correlation. 
Uh, top nine elements in the Earth's crust. Oxygen, 46%. Silicon, 27%. Aluminum, iron, calcium, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and many others. Those first nine that I read, the first nine elements I just read that are in the Earth's crust, all nine of those are in the human body. The human body is made up of oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, fluorine, magnesium, and others, including zinc, lead, copper, aluminum, tin, nickel, mercury, silver, gold. Did you know you have gold in your body? Yeah, you do. Naturally, and uranium. And did you know that all 59 elements found in the human body are, can be found in the Earth's crust? That is amazing. That is scientific. So it's not a faith versus science. There's nothing in the Bible that conflicts with true science. Because God is the greatest scientific mind there ever was. Let's go on to number 10. Genesis 1 and 2 is not subject to worldly scientism. And what I put by scientism is not true science, but it's scientists who don't believe in Scripture, who don't believe in God, who, are, who have presuppositions that they have to believe in. So if you have an atheist... His presupposition is God doesn't exist. Therefore, God and the Bible can't account for how things came to be. Therefore, I've got to adjust my science. And it becomes jaded and it's not objective. It is not empirical. It is not true science. Really what it is, it is a religious belief. Evolution is a passionate religious belief and commitment for the most part. So it is a faith. So it's Christian faith versus non-Christian faith. That's what we're dealing with. We stand at the same place as the evolutionists. We were not around at the time of creation. And it is a matter of faith of how everything began. The person that believes in the Bible says, by faith I believe it's how Genesis said. The evolutionist who's an atheist says, by faith I believe it is through the science that I have come up with through time and my own mind and human wisdom. The Bible says, no, we are not subject to worldly scientism or worldly science. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Guard what has been entrusted to you, Christian, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. That's what we have today. It's rampant in the world and in our schools. That evolution is true. It is science. It is fact. Scripture calls it falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and have thus gone astray from the faith. Great warning today about evolution in the church. That's number 10. Let's go on to number 11. Believing Genesis 1 and 2 puts you in the super minority in the church if you believe in a literal Genesis 1 through 3, 1 through 11. You're not just a minority in the world. You are a minority today in the church. I've seen this. You can hardly find a commentary on Genesis that takes Genesis 1 through 3 literally in this day and age. But that's okay. Being in the minority sometimes is good. It's not about being in the majority. It's about following truth, isn't it? And truth is many times in the minority. 1 John 4.1 Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Don't just go with the flow. Cater to peer pressure. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Reject that which is evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us. 2 Corinthians 10.5 and 6 Destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ even when it comes to origins. It's a command. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of Me. If your children go to a public school, they're going to be maligned and mocked if they believe in evolution. I mean, if they deny evolution, if they believe in a literal earth and I mean a literal creation of the earth. They're going to be mocked. Jesus said, Blessed are you if you believe Scripture. So it will put you in the minority. That's okay. Jesus said, if you're going to be a Christian, you will be in the minority. You will always be swimming upstream. Number 12, God does miracles and is infinite, eternal, 
and omnipotent. Anything that cannot, some things just can't be explained by science, can they? Like Adam being created into a human being from a pile of dirt. What is that? That's a miracle. And the God of the Bible does miracles. He is the creator. He has the ability to do that. That's the God I believe in. That's the God I know. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead. The same God that put the Holy Spirit in my heart. Again, it comes down to faith. God does miracles and is infinite, eternal, and omnipotent. I quote there from Job 38. At the end of the book of Job, God finally talks to Job and sets him straight and his friends on all their fuzzy and wrong thinking. And he addresses Job as the creator. And he asks Job a whole bunch of questions. A lot of them have to do with the fact that Job wasn't around when God created the world. And listen to what the Lord said to, to Job. The Lord, or Yahweh, answered Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? There it is. Where were you when I created everything? Implication, you weren't around. You don't know. You're dependent upon me for that information. And we could say that to an evolutionist who says the world is 18 billion years old. Just ask him, where were you when the foundation of the world was laid and created by Almighty God? You were not there. That is not science. That is not objective. That is your opinion. That is a presupposition. That is a faith commitment. That is religion. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then Job answered the Lord and said, I am insignificant. What a great answer. What can I reply to you, O God? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job said, you know what? I just need to shut up when I am in front of the great Creator. I am insignificant. God does miracles. Job understood that. Number 13, Genesis 1 and 2 is the only God-given account of how things began. He is the only eyewitness. He's the one that did it. And the only information we have from God is Genesis 1 and 2. And if we can't believe it and take it at face value, why believe anything else God has given us in Scripture? Why? I already referred to this, but Moses took Genesis 1 and 2 literally. The community of Israel took the book of Genesis literally. That was how they understood it. The Apostle Paul took Genesis 1 and 2 literally. He believed Adam was a real guy. He believed the creation account just the way it was given. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul tells us that Christ is the second Adam. He came to solve the problem of the first Adam. And he quotes and he refers to Adam. That it was through the disobedience of Adam, the first man, according to Genesis, that sin entered the world. That's why creation is important and origins is important because it's the foundation of soteriology and salvation and the work of Christ. The veracity of Scripture. So Paul took the Genesis account literally. Jesus took Genesis 1 and 2 literally. We already read that in Mark 10.6 where he quoted Genesis 1.27, coupled it with Genesis 2.24 and other passages as one unit as the authoritative Word of God given by the hand of Moses. Jesus' understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 was that it was literal. If Jesus said it, I believe it. That settles it for me. And also the church, the church of Jesus Christ, as well as all of Old Testament Israel, the church took Genesis 1 and 2 literally up until the 1850s. This is a novel thing to deny and reject creation as given in Genesis 1 and 2. In 1850, some, un, some believers got influenced by the world and started compromising and accommodating secular theory into their views of origins and messed everything up. And now it's run amok and is rampant in the evangelical world today. It's a shame. Number 14, there's no reason to reject Genesis 1 and 2 based on the grammar, syntax, language, context, or theology of the Bible. They have to do it some other way. And the way they do it is with philosophy, human wisdom, human rationale, human argumentation. That's why when you try to take somebody to Scripture, they don't want to stay. They are uncomfortable in the text of Genesis 1 and 2. 
They want to get out of that. But you've got to look at this. But how did light get here? That's 15 billion light years away. And what about the fossil record? Now let's stay in Scripture and see what God said. A day means a day in Genesis 1 with an ordinal. We talked about that. Nothing about the syntax, the grammar, the language, or the context, or the theology that would discount Scripture as we read it. And yet today, unfortunately, in the Christian world, what reigns supreme are compromised literary attacks from the Christian world of hermeneutical butchery in a futile attempt to reconcile the Bible with secular, naturalistic, atheistic, humanistic, evolutionary presuppositions about origins when they look at Scripture and Genesis. And I counted, get this, I counted 21 alternative Christian views of how to really and accurately understand Genesis 1 and 2 and not take it literally. These are compromised views. And these are by Christians. The restitution theory. The anthropomorphic theory. The age-separated theory. Old creationism theory. Allegorical theory. The demythologizing theory. The saga theory by Karl Barth. The phenomenological theory. The progressive creationism theory. Punctuated equilibrium theory. But the polemical view. Concordianism. Blah, 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 blah. Gives me a headache just reading it. It's hard to follow and understand. And then I just read Genesis 1 at face value. And, oh, how refreshing. How simple. How easy to believe. You can't follow the arguments of all these guys. By the way, here's something that might shock you regarding the allegorical theory. There is no allegory in Scripture. There is no allegory in Scripture. It is history. It's, it's got other devices in it, poetry and whatever else, but it's still history. So on and on it goes. And the two most uh, pro, uh, prolific views in the Christian world today of a non-literal view are the framework hypothesis view and the day-age theory. But they have nothing to do with the text itself, the grammar, the syntax, the language, the context, or theology of Genesis. It's all philosophy. Number 15. In light of everything that we said, because God is Creator, He can also be our Savior and Judge. That's the argument in Isaiah 43. God is talking in Isaiah 43 for many chapters, and that's how He starts out. He starts out by reminding Israel that He is the Creator. He is the One who brought them into existence. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, your Creator, He who formed you. There is no Savior besides Me. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator, your King. The King is the Judge. I am your Savior. And it all goes back and based on the fact that He is the Creator and did it just as He said. Just as He revealed in Genesis 1-3. through He can be our Judge and our Savior because He is the Creator. Romans 3, 4. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Or we could say it this way. Let God's Word be found true, though every man be found a liar. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. Proverbs 35 and 6 Every Word of God is flawless. It can be trusted. You can put your faith in it. Do not add to His words. You know, there were 21 Christianized theories of Genesis 1 and 2. That's, that's adding to Scripture. That is not in the Bible. Proverbs 35 and 6. Do not add to God's words, lest He reprove you and you be found a liar. So let's be faithful to God by being faithful to His Word. He is true. Human wisdom is a lie. And bottom line, it comes down to faith, doesn't it? It comes down to faith in His Word. Beautiful, simplistic faith. As Jesus said, faith like a child. Like I said, I've read Genesis to my children. 
It's fun to read it to young kids because they believe it. They think it is exciting. They take it at face value. That's why Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be like one of these children who just has this beautiful, simplistic faith taking God at His Word. So that is creation. And next week, we're going to go ahead and look at what happened right after that messed everything up, and that is the fall, and we'll look to God's Word at that time. So let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord, thanking Him for our time together. Father, we do thank You for for gathering the saints together in the local church, the body of Christ. Thank You for Grace Bible Fellowship. Thank You that we could worship You, encourage one another, meet new people, and then open Your Word and have Your Holy Spirit teach us about You, about Your truth. God, continue to be our teacher. We can have stubborn hearts. We can be short-sighted. I know I can. And God, we just pray that Your Holy Spirit keeps softening our hearts, opening our eyes, so we can understand Your truth, and more importantly, apply it to our life so that we might please You in all things. And we do want to please You as Creator, as Savior, and Judge. And to You be the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The message you've just heard was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.